If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. My name is Greg, and I think we have an interesting episode ahead today. A little bit of a deep dive, an investigation, kind of like a mystery that we're going to uncover and follow. But let me set that up by explaining why we're going to talk about this today. And that is because one of you listeners sent a great email with a fantastic question. Before I read it, let me just point out that I love getting your emails and your messages. I love questions. It's starting it to the point where every day I'm spending half an hour trying to keep up with just all of the listener email and the questions that are coming in. And I try to answer as many as I can, either off the air or on the air. And in fact, this week we've got several recording sessions scheduled with both Corey and Ed specifically to record answers to your questions. And I've got a couple of listener question sessions uh, scheduled where I'm going to just take on these questions. So I love to get the questions. I love to get your comments and suggestions. The way you do that is you email me at consideringcatholicism at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, consideringcatholicism.com, and you can leave a message or a voicemail there, and I'll try my best to answer it either on the air or off the air. Uh, Be patient. Sometimes it takes a few days just to catch up, but anyway, so let me get to this one today. It's from a listener named Dale, and he wrote in with this question. Let me read it to you. He said, my wife and I recently traveled to Lake Superior. And while there, attended Mass in St. Mary's Star of the Sea Church in Duluth, Minnesota. It was a beautiful church built in 1905, but I was puzzled by something. Behind the altar, there were three statues, Mary, Jesus, and we think Joseph. The Mary statue was in the center and positioned much higher than the other two. I've learned that the Catholic Church rarely does something without a purpose. Why is Mary placed in a more prominent place than Jesus? I feel as if some Protestant colleagues of mine would use this as evidence that the church worships Mary. Dale, what a great question. And this question in particular excites me because I love church architecture. I love exploring church architecture. I love researching church architecture. I love talking about church architecture. I love teaching classes about church architecture. And I love leading groups and pilgrimages to experience church architecture. I've done that here in the United States. I've done that in Europe. And I hope to be leading another one of those pilgrimages soon. And if I do, maybe some of you can join me and we can explore some of the riches of the church's heritage expressed in its art and architecture. If you want to keep up with when we might do something like that, join our mailing list. I'm going to start a regular email newsletter 
And you can sign up for that on our website, consideringcatholicism.com, and I'll list upcoming classes and pilgrimages that you might be able to take part in. So, let's tackle Dale's question. When I got his email, I immediately went to the website for Star of the Sea Catholic Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I did some other research online about its history, its architecture, its art, and so forth. And Dale, you're right. It is a beautiful example of what's called the Gothic Revival style in American church design during the immigrant period. So right around the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s, so many of these waves of Catholic immigrants coming from Germany and Italy and Poland and other places to the U.S. And in their immigrant communities, they built beautiful Catholic churches that are reminiscent of the places they left behind. And one of the styles that these were built in was called Gothic Revival. And if this was an episode all about church architecture styles, I would do a deep dive into Gothic Revival and how it's different than traditional Gothic or Neo-Gothic or Romanesque or whatever, but we're not going to go there. However, to properly answer your question about the positioning of Mary's statue behind the altar, we need to start with the name of the parish. And an interesting story about the etymology of words, languages, translation, metaphors, and how the Catholic Church has always read Scripture from the time of the New Testament. And once we clear that up, then we can move on to architecture statues and whether this is an example of Marian idolatry. So, to answer your seemingly simple question, we need to go on a sort of long and winding road, a little bit of an investigation, and I think this is going to be fun. So, let's get started. Star of the Sea is one of the traditional titles for the Blessed Virgin Mary. With its origins in the writings of St. Jerome, the scholar who first translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin during the 4th century, the 300s so that the Bible could be distributed and read throughout the Roman Empire. Because during the Roman Empire, most people spoke their local or tribal or ethnic language, but Latin was the universal official language of the empire. So if you wanted a lot more people to read the Bible, it had to be translated into Latin. And well, that's what St. Jerome did that made him so famous. Now, in Latin, the phrase star of the sea is Stella Maris. S-T-E-L-L-A-M-A-R-I-S. And you have probably seen or will occasionally see that phrase in Latin. But how did that Latin title, Star of the Sea, Stella Maris, get attached to the Blessed Virgin Mary? Well, this is where we get into some interesting stuff about languages. So, Mary, the mother of Jesus, her name in Hebrew is Miriam, who you might recall in the Old Testament was the sister of Moses. She sings this amazing song after the Israelites pass through the Red Sea and the Egyptians are destroyed. There's this whole song of Miriam in Exodus. So who we call Mary, her Hebrew name was actually Miriam, but the New Testament was written in Greek, of course. And in Greek, Mary's Hebrew name, Miriam, was rendered as Maria. Now, a few hundred years later, when St. Jerome was translating the New Testament into Latin, he and others couldn't help but notice that this name, Maria, 
was the same as the Latin word for sea, or more particularly seas. In Latin, the word for sea is mare, singular, but maria, plural. You see this reflected in words like marine, marine life, or mariner. So now we need to introduce another word, which is homophone. A homophone are two words that sound the same, but mean something different. So in English, we have three words there, there, and there, but they all mean something different. Or for example, we say bat to mean a little flying rodent, but we also say bat to mean a stick that you hit a baseball with. Bat and bat, there and there. So while the name Maria is the Greek and Latin translation of the Hebrew name Miriam, it is a homophone with the Latin word for seas, Maria. Of course, nobody confused the two, just as we don't confuse the word bat and bat or there and there. But you can see how homophones are occasions for poetic associations, puns, symbolism, metaphors. So, during the Middle Ages, Catholic Christian writers and preachers began to use this homophone of Maria the name with Maria the seas as a metaphor for how the Blessed Virgin Mary is a guiding light for Christians navigating the sea or the seas of life towards salvation. Just as sailors use stars to navigate on their journeys, so they said, Mary is seen as a a spiritual guide, a, a sort of north star, leading us to our destination, her son, Jesus Christ. Now, just as an aside, I can already hear some Protestants saying, why do we need Mary or Maria to be our guide to navigate towards Jesus? Why don't we just aim towards Jesus? And I don't want to cover all of the basics of Marian theology in this episode because we've talked about it so much on here. But Mary is not only the new Eve, she's not only the tabernacle or the vessel by which the incarnation is brought to us. She, as we've often said, is the first and most perfect of Jesus's disciples, modeling obedience and devotion and love to him. So she is a model, a guide, a a mentor for us. She points the way to her son. Mary always is pointing the way to her son. And you can see how in the Middle Ages, this association sparked these metaphors that she is the star that guides us through the stormy seas of life in the ship of St. Peter, the church, towards our destination, her son, Jesus Christ. So that is the background, the rationale, the history behind this title for Mary as the star of the sea, Stella Maris. And it really developed over the last 1,500 years or so into this rich devotional metaphor. Now, again, to sort of preempt the Protestant objection that somehow the Romans and the pagan Catholic Church just glommed on to some pagan goddess, you know, uh, Venus or something, the morning star, and glommed on to that for Mary. It's just, that's just not how it happened. It, it happened as I described it. The early Christian fathers, writers, devotion writers, just began to sort of use this homophone, this association to reflect on the ways that, that Mary is sort of the star that guides us through the stormy seas of life for the church in the ship of St. Peter. Okay, um, got it, right? 
Let's fast forward to 1905 in Duluth, Minnesota. So in the years just prior to that, a number of Polish Catholic immigrants had arrived in Duluth. And when they got there, they began attending another parish in Duluth. But according to what I read, they didn't feel that comfortable in the other parishes that were full of German and Irish immigrants. They didn't speak the same languages. They had different customs. And, well, you know, Germans and Poles haven't always gotten along well together. So these recent Polish Catholic immigrants decided to form their own parish and build a new church building for it. But what should their new parish be called? Well, they had come over the sea to America. And if you look at a map, Duluth is on the far western shore of Lake Superior. It's about as far west as you can go in Lake Superior, which is one of the largest inland seas on the planet. In fact, Duluth is the port that the Edmund Fitzgerald embarked from on its final fateful journey before sinking over in Whitefish Bay on the other side of the great inland sea that is Lake Superior. So, these Polish immigrants looking for a name for their parish, a patron saint for their parish, said, well, the Blessed Virgin Mary in her role as the star of the sea seems like a great patron saint for our parish. By the way, some of you may be wondering, some Protestants may wonder, what is a patron saint? Why do parishes have a patron saint? If you go back into the ancient world, there was this concept of the patron. The patron would be an influential individual, a landowner, a politician, an influential bishop, somebody to whom they could go to and petition for grievances and assistance and help. And and that person would then, of course, have influence in the government and could help them out. So the concept of a patron saint developed, which would be a particular saint that you have a sort of special connection with, a sort of special devotion to, that you dedicate your parish to, and who particularly prays for your parish. So, of course, all around the world, you have Catholic churches, Catholic parishes named for a saint, and that would be the patron saint of that parish. So, these Polish immigrant Catholics in Duluth picked Mary in her title as the Star of the Sea as the patron saint for their new parish, and they named it after her. So typically, in every instance I can think of, a parish has somewhere in the building a representation, a statue, an icon, a painting, something, representing their patron saint for that parish. So if you go to St. Anthony's Parish, there'll be a statue or an icon or representation somewhere, usually in the main church, quite often in the sanctuary area up near the altar of St. Anthony. The same if you go to a parish named St. Patrick's or St. Cecilia's or whatever. Therefore, it only made sense that in 1905, when these Polish Catholic immigrants in Duluth built Star of the Sea Parish, they commissioned a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary in her capacity as the Star of the Sea and placed it in the sanctuary for intercession, veneration, a devotional reminder, a sacramental reminder. So we're starting to inch our way closer to Dale's original question because it only makes sense that there would be a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary in her role as the star of the sea somewhere prominently placed in the sanctuary of the church. 
And that brings us to a lesson about Catholic Church architecture. Now, in a traditional Catholic Church, an ancient Romanesque design, particularly a Gothic design, and any Neo-Gothic or Gothic Revival design, the Church is cruciform in its design. What that means is that in plan view or floor plan view, so looking at it from above, it's shaped like a cross. That's what the cruciform means. So visualize a cross. You've got the long arm of the cross, right? The bottom arm. And in a traditional church, that's known as the nave, N-A-V-E, which coincidentally also has etymological roots associated with the ocean. It's where we get the word naval or navy, and it's called the nave because that's where the people sit, where you and I sit when we go to mass. We sit in rows in the nave. And so if you think about the church as the ship of St. Peter, which is carrying us through the stormy seas of life to our destination, Jesus Christ, we are sitting in that boat in the rows of seats, and that's the nave in a traditional church. Now, above the nave, if you were looking at it as a cross up and down, would be the cross piece. You know, the two short arms that stick out to the left and the right. Those are called in traditional church architecture the transepts, left transept, right transept. In traditional church architecture, there'll be something special in the transepts. Perhaps the tabernacle will be located there in one, a chapel in the other, for example, beautiful stained glass windows. So again, think about that. Cruciform church, the long bottom piece, the nave in which we are sitting in the ship of St. Peter, sailing through the stormy seas of life, following the star of the sea, the Blessed Virgin Mary to our destination, her son in heaven. You've got the transepts and then you've got the top piece, the part that goes above the transepts. And that's called the apse, A-P-S-E. Now, in that traditional church design, the altar is usually located at the intersection of the cross where the two beams meet. So you'll put the altar sort of above the nave, above or behind the altar. So if you're sitting in the church in mass, in the nave, one of the people, you're looking through or past the altar to the apse. Now, you can probably see why you would locate the altar at the center of the cross, because that's the center of our faith. It's the altar of sacrifice, where we celebrate Christ's crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, right? Where his body and blood are consecrated. The altar is the center of a Catholic church, and it's located at the center of the cross in a cruciform church. And we sitting in the nave are gazing up the aisles towards the altar and the celebration of Christ's crucifixion, right? Now, in that area that is behind the altar, from our perspective, that area we call the apse, you would sometimes have seats for the clergy. Uh, sometimes you would have the bishop's chair there, uh, if it's in a cathedral. For example, in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome, which is the cathedral church of Rome, there is the chair of the bishop of Rome, which would be the pope, is at the back of the apse. But there's sort of another way to think about the nave and the apse. And it goes to, in a sense, the two parts of the church described by two ancient terms, the church militant and the church triumphant. 
Now, the church militant goes back to this root word etymologically, back to the Latin, of military. People who have orders, people who are marching, people who are out accomplishing missions and tasks. And the church militant is us. Those living Christians, living members of the church, living in this world, following Christ, following his mission, carrying out his orders, our mission in the world, fighting and struggling against darkness, against evil, against the evil powers of this world, to be obedient to Christ. We are the church militant, and we sit in the nave. Okay, and it's like if it's the Navy, we're, we're the sailors or the Marines in this ship as we embark on the great task of following Christ and again obeying his orders and fighting against evil and darkness in this world. The church triumphant are those Christians who have passed over, who have died and are in heaven with Jesus and the rest of the saints adoring and worshiping the Lord. They have triumphed over the struggles of this world and have been taken up to his kingdom. So, in the traditional mystical architecture of the church, where do you think the church triumphant is? It's in the apse. So, as we sit in the nave, the seats, we are looking towards the altar of sacrifice, towards Christ's body and blood, whereas the church triumphant who has passed through has been elevated and raised up, and they are sort of symbolically understood to be in that apse on the other side of the altar, right? As we look at the cruciform church from the top down, and in traditional church architecture, Catholic church, the apse has representations of the church triumphant, saints. They're going to be frescoes, mosaics, statues, or whatever in that apse area. So as we sit in our seats during Mass, looking through the priest, the celebrant of the Mass, through the body and blood of Christ on the altar, we glimpse representations of those Christians who have passed over from the church militant through the cross, through the sacrifice, to triumph and are with the Lord in heaven. Now, one of the most common architectural decorations that you'll find in that apse area is something called a reredos, spelled R-E-R-E-D-O-S, reredos. A reredos is like a decorative screen, and traditionally in Gothic or Neo-Gothic or Gothic revival churches, the reredos is often in the shape of a, well, of a model of a Gothic church or a Gothic cathedral. So it looks like a miniature Gothic church back there, like a scale model. And a lot of times there'll be little niches in the Reredos, in this model of the church, where there'll be little statues of saints, usually the patron saints for that church. So in the cathedral in our diocese, there is a Reredos, which looks like a scale model of a Gothic church, and it has these niches for four or five little statues of various saints that have some significance for our diocese. Now, I'll admit it sometimes looks a little weird. You know, you're sitting in the church and you're looking past the altar and you see essentially a scale model of another church back there, especially since it's usually this very ornate 
Gothic church, all pointy with the spires and everything uh, reaching up. And you go, why do they have a scale model of a church in the back of the church or in the front of the church, depending on your perspective? Well, let's think about it. What did we just say that the nave represents? The church triumphant. So that Reredos, that scale model of an ideal Gothic cathedral that's back there with little niches for the saints, represents the church triumphant, the church that has passed through death, that has triumphed over the struggles of this world, that has gone up to be with the Lord and is worshiping him at this moment. And it's the great cloud of witnesses spoken of in the book of Hebrews and that we can see in the book of Revelation that are before the Lord and interceding on our behalf. That's why you have little statues of saints that are in there, especially saints that are significant to that particular church, because they are the, in a sense, sort of the patron saints of that parish or that church. And and we're reminded that they are in heaven as part of that great cloud of witnesses that is before the Lord interceding on our behalf, on behalf of the church militant, the people on the other side of the altar sitting in the nave. So the church militant in the nave, the us, looks through the sacrifice of Christ at the center of the cross that the church is shaped in and sees past it the church triumphant, those who have gone before us and are now the great cloud of witnesses praying for us before the Lord. And in particular, we see reminders of certain saints who are the patrons of this particular church that are interceding on our behalf and our models or inspirations for us to live the life that they lived and to triumph as they have. Now, Dale, I'm sure that you see where this is going because when I went online and looked at photos of star of the sea church in Duluth, Minnesota, I saw that in the apps behind the altar was exactly this sort of Reredos, a scale model of the idealized Gothic cathedral, the ideal church, the church triumphant, with niches for statues of patron saints that are part of the church triumphant, praying for that parish. In particular, as you rightly pointed out, one was Mary, one was Joseph, and one was Jesus. And now, like, 25, 30 minutes after we started, we finally get to the original question, which is, why is the statue of Mary in the Reredos and the Apps, part of the church triumphant in that idealized scale model, why is she at the top of the column? Because as Dale said in his question, there are these three statues and they're sort of arranged um, kind of in a triangular form. In other words, there's two uh, side by side, and then one that's in the middle a little bit higher up. And that one at the top is Mary. And then on the left side, you see a statue of Jesus, and on the right side, a statue of Joseph. And his original question was, why is Mary elevated above Jesus? Shouldn't the Jesus statue be at the top with Mary and Joseph below them? Well, I hope that all of you are beginning to connect the dots here and figure it out. Because Mary is the patron saint of the Star of the Sea Church in her title, Star of the Sea. As the patron of that particular parish, she is in a prominent position. 
at the top. And she is in that Reredos scale model of the church because she is the greatest of the disciples. She is the queen of heaven. She is the most perfect of God's creatures. And so therefore she is at the top of that church triumphant as she is in heaven, close to Christ, interceding and looking down from that position in that Reredos down across the altar to the people, the church triumphant, the people seated in the rows. Now, why is Joseph on one side? Well, it is very traditional in Catholic churches to have statues of Mary and Joseph up in or near to the sanctuary. And then there's the statue of Jesus. But why is he lower than Mary? Again, one reason is that she's the patron saint, but think about it. Jesus, in a sense, isn't really part of the church triumphant, is he? He is the Lord. He is the one that the church triumphant is worshiping. So if you're thinking of it as some sort of a representation, Mary, the star of the sea, the patron of that parish, is at the top of that church triumphant and not really Jesus. He would, in a sense, it would be above it. And in another sense, Jesus is already represented in a more prominent position of the church on the altar because his body and his blood is consecrated, celebrated, made real there on the altar. The altar is the center of that cruciform church. The church triumphant in the apse, you know, the Reredos in the back with the statues is merely gazing towards the altar. That's the center. So, in one sense, Mary is positioned in this Reredos in this particular church a couple of feet higher than the statue of Jesus. But in another sense, Jesus is already more prominent because he's there on the altar. Now, as I looked at the photos of this church, I I had another thought, another inkling about maybe why the Jesus statue was positioned where it was. And then I read an article about the history of this particular church, and it made me think that there might be something else going on. I suspect, based on reading up on the history of this church, uh, its architecture, its construction, and the difference stylistically between these statues, that the Mary Star of the Sea statue at the top of the Reredos is older or more original to the architecture of that parish, and that the Jesus statue, which is positioned a little lower to the side, was added later. I can't prove that. I I can't determine that for sure. But I just have this hunch that this church was built in 1905 and that Mary is the star of the sea. That statue is older and more original to that Reredos and that apse. And that at some point later on, maybe the Jesus and Joseph statues were added. But I think in terms of getting the theology right, she is the patron saint as the star of the sea. She is at the top of the church triumphant, represented in the Reredos and the apse, gazing down towards the altar of sacrifice where her son's body and blood is given for us, the church militant, sitting in the pews in the nave. Also, as I look at the photos of the front of this church, another thing that I think reinforces this view of the Reredos there, this model church as the church triumphant, is that there are two statues of angels to either side of the Reredos, 
representing the angels in heaven that attend to the church triumphant. There are also some paintings in the apps, and from the photos, I can't quite tell from the angle, and they're a little bit fuzzy, but I think at least one of those paintings is a painting of Jesus. And, you know, one of the things that happens in historic churches over time is pieces are added. You know, these Polish immigrants that built this church in 1905, they didn't have a lot of money or education. They gave everything they had to build this beautiful church and adorn it. And quite often in the stories of churches, there are statues added, paintings added, things that people donate that the church acquires over time, you know, that patrons give. And some of these decorative pieces in the front of churches or in sanctuaries or around the nave are, you know, are added over time. And so sometimes those are consistent with the original architectural design and sometimes they kind of become additions to it. So I can't really say whether, you know, the church was built in 1905 with Mary as the star of the sea at the top of the church triumphant and the Rebredos, and then maybe various other paintings and statues were added over time. But to your original question, the reason that Mary is at the top of that is not because she is more important than Jesus. It's because she is the star of the sea, the patron saint of that parish. She is at the top of the church triumphant, and she looks down and gazes towards the altar. You know, here's another just quick sidebar on one of the, what I think is probably the greatest piece of Christian art ever created, and that is Michelangelo's Pietà. And the Pietà, which is in St. Peter's Basilica, but we've all seen photos of Michelangelo's Pietà, is a representation of the Blessed Virgin Mary holding the crucified body of Christ. And I've talked at length about it and the symbolism of it. But of course, as she's holding him, she is larger and above him as he is crucified across her lap. Uh, But what's interesting is that it was originally designed by Michelangelo to be an altarpiece or to be positioned behind an altar. And if you think about it, behind an altar, Mary would be prominent. She would be big and she is in her arms offering her broken son across the altar to us. And I think here, even in Star of the Sea Church in Duluth, there's something of that. Mary here at the top of the church triumphant is, in a sense, looking across the altar, giving her son to the people of the church militant in the nave. Well, that was a very long, probably overly complicated answer to your question, Dale, of why in Star of the Sea Church in Duluth, Minnesota, there is a statue of Mary that is positioned above the statues of Jesus and Joseph. And you can assure your Protestant colleagues that it is not because the church worships Mary as being higher or more important than Jesus. Dale, I thank you so much for writing in. I thank you so much for your support. I thank you so much for your questions. And all of you, if you want your questions answered, I'll I'll do my best as much as I can. This is a a very part-time thing for me, and it's becoming more and more time-consuming as we are growing. We're we're passing 10,000 downloads a month, and it's becoming uh, closer and closer to being a 
uh, quite a half-time to full-time job just to kind of keep up with all of this and produce these episodes. So uh, I appreciate your encouragement, your comments, your emails, your questions. Please rate and review the podcast so that we can continue to be more prominent in searches and visit our website. And if you would, would you support the podcast financially? Um, as I've shared my story before, this is a ministry that I'm trying to engage in, and uh, it, it's increasingly taking an awful lot of time and an awful lot of tools. And so your financial support, your one-time or recurring donations just make it possible for me to take the time away from my other work or other projects to do this. And I'm really grateful for that. You can support us by following the link in the show notes or off the website. And uh, I'd appreciate that. Uh, And if you've got a question that you'd like answered again, send it in. But Dale, thanks. And I hope that this answered your question. God bless you all. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Considering Catholicism.